0: Section twenty two of Celebrated Crimes, Volume one by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part three of the Cenci. The Pope was so horrified on reading the particulars of the crime contained in the Confessions that he ordered the culprits to be dragged by wild horses through the streets of Rome. But so barbarous a sentence shocked the public mind, so much so that many persons of princely rank petitioned the Holy Father on their knees, imploring him to reconsider his decree, or at least allow the accused to be heard in their defense. "'Tell me,' replied Clement VIII, "'did they give their unhappy father time to be heard in his own defense when they slew him in so merciless and degrading a fashion?' At length, overcome by so many entreaties, he respited them for three days— The most eloquent and skillful advocates in Rome immediately busied themselves in preparing pleadings for so emotional a case, and on the day fixed for hearing appeared before his holiness. The first pleader was Niccolò degli Angeli, who spoke with such force and eloquence that the Pope, alarmed at the effect he was producing among the audience, passionately interrupted him. "'Are there, then, to be found?' he indignantly cried, "'among the Roman nobility!' children capable of killing their parents, and among Roman lawyers, men capable of speaking in their defense. This is a thing we should never have believed, nor even a moment supposed it plausible. All were silent upon this terrible rebuke, except Farinacci, who, nerving himself with a strong sense of duty, replied respectfully but firmly, Most holy father, we are not here to defend criminals, but to save the innocent.' For if we succeed in proving that any of the accused acted in self-defense, I hope that they will be exonerated in the eyes of your holiness, for just as the law provides for cases in which the father may legally kill the child, so this holds good in the converse, we will therefore continue our pleadings on receiving leave from your holiness to do so. Clement VIII then showed himself as patient as he had previously been hasty, and heard the argument of Farinacci, who pleaded that Francesco Sensi had lost all the rights of a father from the day that he violated his daughter. In support of his contention, he wished to put, in the memorial sent by Beatrice to His Holiness, petitioning him, as her sister had done, to remove her from the paternal roof and place her in a convent. Unfortunately, this petition had disappeared, and notwithstanding the minutest search among the papal documents, no trace of it could be found." The Pope had all the pleadings collected and dismissed the advocates who then retired, excepting Adeltieri, who kneeled before him, saying, "'Most Holy Father, I humbly ask pardon for appearing before you in this case, but I had no choice in the matter being the advocate of the poor.' The Pope kindly raised him, saying, "'Go. We are not surprised at your conduct, but at that of others who protect and defend criminals.' As the Pope took a great interest in this case, He sat up all night over it, studying it with Cardinal de San Marcello, a man of such acumen and great experience in criminal cases. Then, having summed it up, he sent a draft of his opinion to the advocates who read it with great satisfaction and entertained hopes that the lives of the convicted persons would be spared, for the evidence all went to prove that even if the children had taken their father's life, all the provocation came from him, and that Beatrice in particular had been dragged into the part she had taken in this crime by the tyranny, wickedness, and brutality of her father." Under the influence of these considerations, the Pope mitigated the severity of their prison life and even allowed the prisoners to hope that their lives would not be forfeited. Amidst the general feeling of relief afforded to the public by these favors, another tragical event changed the papal mind and frustrated all his humane intentions. This was the atrocious murder of the Marchese di Santa Croce, a man seventy years of age, by his son Paolo, who stabbed him with a dagger in fifteen or twenty places, because the father would not promise to make Paolo his sole heir. The murderer fled and escaped. Clement VIII was horror-stricken at the increasing frequency of this crime of parricide. For the moment, however, he was unable to take action, having to go to Monte Cavallo to consecrate a cardinal titular bishop in the church of Santa Maria degli Angeli, but the day following, on Friday the 10th of September 1599, at eight o'clock in the morning he summoned Monsignor Taverna, governor of Rome, and said to him, Monseigneur, we place in your hands the Sensi case, that you may carry out the sentence as speedily as possible. On his return to his palace, after leaving his holiness, the governor convened a meeting of all the criminal judges in the city, the result of the council being that all the Sensi were condemned to death. The final sentence was immediately known, and as this unhappy family inspired a constantly increasing interest, many cardinals spent the whole of the night either on horseback or in their carriages making interest that, at least so far as the women were concerned, they should be put to death privately and in the prison, and that a free pardon should be granted to Bernardo, a poor lad only fifteen years of age, who, guiltless of any participation in the crime, yet found himself involved in its consequences. The one who interested himself most in the case was Cardinal Sforza, who nevertheless failed to elicit a single gleam of hope, so obdurate was his holiness. At length, Farinacci, working on the papal conscience, succeeded after long and urgent entreaties, and only at the last moment that the life of Bernardo should be spared. From Friday evening, the members of the Brotherhood of the uh, Conforteria had gathered at the two prisons of Corte Savella and Turinona. The preparations for the closing scene of the tragedy had occupied workmen on the bridge of St. Angelo all night, And it was not till five o'clock in the morning that the registrar entered the cell of Lucrezia and Beatrice to read their sentences to them. Both were sleeping, calm, in the belief of a reprieve. The registrar woke them and told them that, judged by man, they must now prepare to appear before God. Beatrice was at first thunderstruck. She seemed paralyzed and speechless. Then she rose from bed and staggered as if intoxicated, recovered her speech, uttering despairing cries. Lucrezia heard the tidings with more firmness and proceeded to dress herself to go to the chapel, exhorting Beatrice to resignation, but she, raving, wrung her hands and struck her head against the wall, shrieking, To die! To die! Am I to die unprepared on a scaffold? On a gibbet? My God! My God! This fit led to a terrible paroxysm, after which the exhaustion of her body enabled her mind to recover its balance, and from that moment she became an angel of humility and an example of resignation her first request was for a notary to make her will. This was immediately complied with, and on his arrival she dictated its provisions with much calmness and precision. Its last clause desired her interment in the church of San Pietro in Montorio, for which she always had a strong attachment as it commanded a view of her father's palace. She bequeathed five hundred crowns to the nuns of the Order of the Stigmata, and ordered that her dowry, amounting to fifteen thousand crowns, should be distributed in marriage portions to fifty poor girls, She selected the foot of the high altar as the place where she wished to be buried, over which hung the beautiful picture of the transfiguration so often admired by her during her life. Following her example, Lucrezia in her turn disposed of her property. She desired to be buried in the church of San Giorgio di Villobre, and left 32,000 crowns to charities with other pious legacies. Having settled their earthly affairs, they joined in prayer, reciting psalms, litanies and the prayers for the dying. At eight o'clock, they confessed, heard mass, and received the sacraments, after which Beatrice, observing to her stepmother that the rich dresses they wore were out of place on a scaffold, ordered two to be made in nun's fashion, that is to say, uh, gathered at the neck with long, wide sleeves. That for Lucrezia was made of black cotton stuff, Beatrice's of taffetas. In addition, she had a small black turban made to place on her head. These dresses with cords for girdles were brought to them, and they were placed on a chair while the women continued to pray. The time appointed being near at hand, they were informed that their last moment was approaching. Then Beatrice, who was still on her knees, rose with a tranquil and almost joyful countenance. "'Mother,' said she, "'the moment of our suffering is impending. I think we had better dress in these clothes, and help one another at our toilet for the last time.' They then put on the dresses provided, girt themselves with the cords. Beatrice placed her turban on her head, and they awaited the last summons. In the meantime, Giacomo and Bernardo, whose sentences had been read to them, awaited also the moment of their death. About ten o'clock, the members of the Confraternity of Mercy, a Florentine order, arrived at the prison of Turinona and halted on the threshold with the crucifix, awaiting the appearance of the unhappy youths. Here a serious accident had nearly happened. As many persons were at the prison windows to see the prisoners come out, someone accidentally threw down a large flowerpot full of earth which fell into the street and narrowly missed one of the confraternity who was amongst the torch-bearers just before the crucifix. It passed so close to the torch as to extinguish the flame in its descent. At this moment the gates opened, and Giacomo appeared first on the threshold. He fell on his knees, adorning the holy crucifix with great devotion. He was completely covered with a large mourning cloak, under which his bare breast was prepared to be torn by the red-hot pincers of the executioner, which were lying ready in a chafing-dish fixed to the cart." Having ascended the vehicle in which the executioner placed him so as more readily to perform his office, Bernardo came out and was thus addressed on his appearance by the fiscal of Rome. Signor Bernardo Cenci, in the name of our blessed Redeemer, our Holy Father the Pope, spares your life with the sole condition that you accompany your relatives to the scaffold and to their death, and never forget to pray for those with whom you were condemned to die. At this unexpected intelligence a loud murmur of joy spread among the crowd, and the members of the confraternity immediately untied the mask which covered the youth's eyes, for, owing to his tender age, it had been thought proper to conceal the scaffold from his sight. Then the executioner, having disposed of Giacomo, came down from the cart to take Bernardo, whose pardon being formally communicated to him, he took off his handcuffs and placed him alongside his brother, covering him up with a magnificent cloak embroidered with gold for the neck and shoulders of the poor lad had been already bared as a preliminary to his decapitation. People were surprised to see such a rich cloak in the possession of the executioner, but were told that it was the one given by Beatrice to Marzio to pledge him to the murder of her father, which fell to the executioner as a a perquisite after the execution of the assassin. The sight of the great assemblage of people produced such an effect upon the boy that he fainted. The procession then proceeded to the prison of Corte Savella, marching to the sound of funeral chants. At its gates the sacred crucifix halted for the women to join. They soon appeared, fell on their knees, and worshipped the holy symbol as the others had done. The march to the scaffold was then resumed. The two female prisoners followed the last row of penitents in a single file, veiled to the waist, with the distinction that Lucrezia, as a widow, wore a black veil and high-heeled slippers of the same hue, with bows of ribbon as was the fashion, whilst Beatrice, as a young unmarried girl, wore a silk flat cap to match her corsage, with a plush hood which fell over her shoulders and covered her violet frock white slippers with high heels, ornamented with gold rosettes and cherry-coloured fringe. The arms of both were untrammeled, except for a thin slack cord, which left their hands free to carry a crucifix and a handkerchief. During the night a lofty scaffold had been erected on the bridge of St. Angelo, and the plank and block were placed thereon. Above the block was hung from a large crossbeam a ponderous axe, which, guided by two grooves, fell with its whole weight at the touch of a spring, In this formation the procession winded its way towards the bridge of St. Angelo. Lucrezia, the more broken down of the two, wept bitterly, but Beatrice was firm and unmoved. On arriving at the open space before the bridge, the women were led into a chapel where they were shortly joined by Giacomo and Bernardo. They remained together for a few minutes, when the brothers were led away to the scaffold, although one was to be executed last and the other was pardoned. But when they had mounted the platform, Bernardo fainted a second time, and as the executioner was approaching to his assistance, some of the crowd, supposing that his object was to decapitate him, cried loudly, "'He is pardoned!' The executioner reassured them by seating Bernardo near the block, Giacomo kneeling on the other side. Then the executioner descended, entered the chapel, and reappeared leading Lucrezia, who was the first to suffer. At the foot of the scaffold he tied her hands behind her back, tore open the top of her corsage so as to uncover her shoulders, gave her the crucifix to kiss and led her to the stepladder, which she ascended with great difficulty on account of her extreme stoutness. Then, on reaching the platform, he removed the veil which covered her head. On this exposure of her features to the immense crowd, Lucretia shuddered from head to foot. Then, her eyes full of tears, she cried with a loud voice, Oh, my God, have mercy on me, and to you, brethren, I pray for my soul. Having uttered these words, not knowing what was required of her, she turned to Alessandro, the chief executioner, and asked what she was to do. He told her to bestride the plank and lie prone upon it, which she did with great trouble and timidity. But as she was unable, on account of the fullness of her bust, to lay her neck upon the block, this had to be raised by placing a billet of wood underneath it. All this time the poor woman, suffering even more from shame than from fear, was kept in suspense. At length, when she was properly adjusted, the executioner touched the spring, and the knife fell and the decapitated head falling on the platform of the scaffold bounded two or three times in the air to the general horror. The executioner then seized it, showed it to the multitude, and wrapping it in black taffetas placed it with the body on a bier at the foot of the scaffold. Whilst the arrangements were being made for the decapitation of Beatrice, several stands full of spectators broke down. Some people were killed by this accident and still more lamed and injured. The machine, being now rearranged and washed, the executioner returned to the chapel to take charge of Beatrice, who, on seeing the sacred crucifix, said some prayers for her soul, and on her hands being tied, cried out, God grant that you be binding this body into corruption and loosing the soul unto life eternal. She then arose, proceeded to the platform, where she devoutly kissed the stigmata, Then, leaving her slippers at the foot of the scaffold, she nimbly ascended the ladder and instructed beforehand promptly lay down on the plank without exposing her naked shoulders. But her precautions to shorten the bitterness of death were no avail, for the Pope, knowing her impetuous disposition and fearing lest she might be led into the commission of some sin between absolution and death, had given orders that the moment Beatrice was extended on the scaffold a signal gun should be fired from the castle of St. Angelo, which was done to the great astonishment of everybody, including Beatrice herself, who, not expecting this explosion, raised herself almost upright. The pope, meanwhile, who was praying at Monte Cavallo, gave her absolution in articulo mortis. About five minutes thus passed, during which the sufferer waited with her head replaced on the block. At length, when the executioner judged that the absolution had been given, he released the spring and the axe fell. A gruesome sight was then afforded. Whilst the head bounced away on one side of the block, on the other the body rose erect as if about to step backwards, The executioner exhibited the head and disposed of it, and the body as before. He wished to place Beatrice's body with that of her stepmother, but the Brotherhood of Mercy took it out of his hands, and as one of them was attempting to lay it on the bier, it slipped from him and fell from the scaffold to the ground below, the dress being partially torn from the body which was so besmeared with dust and blood that much time was occupied in washing it. Poor Bernardo was so overcome by this horrible scene that he swooned away for the third time and it was necessary to revive him with stimulants to witness the fate of his elder brother. The turn of Giacomo at length arrived. He had witnessed the death of his stepmother and his sister, and his clothes were covered with their blood. The executioner approached him and tore off his cloak, exposing his bare breast covered with the wounds caused by the grip of red-hot pincers. In this state, and half-naked, he rose to his feet, turning to his brother, said, Bernardo, if in my examination I have compromised and accused you... I have done so falsely, and although I have already disavowed this declaration, I repeat, at the moment of appearing before God, that you are innocent, and that it is a cruel abuse of justice to compel you to witness this frightful spectacle. The executioner then made him kneel down, bound his legs to one of the beams erected on the scaffold, and, having bandaged his eyes, shattered his head with a blow of his mallet. Then, in the sight of all, he hacked his body into four quarters— The official party then left, taking with them Bernardo, who, being in a state of high fever, was bled and put to bed. The corpses of the two ladies were laid out, each on its bier, under the statue of St. Paul at the foot of the bridge, with four torches of white wax, which burned till four o'clock in the afternoon. Then, along with the remains of Giacomo, they were taken to the church of San Giovanni da Colato. Finally, about nine in the evening, the body of Beatrice, covered with flowers and attired in the dress worn at her execution, was carried to the church of San Pietro in Montorio, with fifty lighted torches, and followed by the brethren of the Order of the Stigmata and all the Franciscan monks in Rome, there, agreeably to her wish, it was buried at the foot of the high altar. The same evening Signora Lucrezia was interred as she had desired to be in the church of San Giorgio di Velobre. All Rome may be said to have been present at this tragedy, carriages, horses, foot-people, and cars crowding as it were upon one another. The day was unfortunately so hot, and the sun so scorching that many persons fainted, others returned home stricken with fever, and some even died during the night, owing to sunstroke from exposure during the three hours occupied by the execution. The Tuesday following, the 14th of September, being the Feast of the Holy Cross, the Brotherhood of San Marcello by special license of the Pope set at liberty the unhappy Bernardo Sensi, with the condition of paying within the year 2,500 Roman crowns to the Brotherhood of the Most Holy Trinity of Pope Sixtus, as may be found today recorded in their archives. Having now seen the tomb, if you desire to form a more vivid impression of the principal actors in this tragedy, than can be derived from a narrative, pay a visit to the Barberini Gallery, where you will see, with five other masterpieces by Guido, the portrait of Beatrice, taken, some say, the night before her execution, others during her progress to the scaffold. It is the head of a lovely girl, wearing a headdress composed of a turban with a lappet. The hair is of a rich, fair chestnut hue. The dark eyes are moistened with recent tears. A perfectly framed nose surmounts an infantile mouth. Unfortunately, the loss of tone in the picture, since it was painted, has destroyed the original fair complexion. The age of the subject may be twenty or perhaps twenty-two years. Near this portrait is that of Lucrezia Petrani. The small head indicates a person below the middle height. The attributes are those of a Roman matron in her pride. Her high-complexion graceful contour—straight nose, black eyebrows, and expression—at the same time imperious and voluptuous—indicate this character to life. A smile still seems to linger on the charming dimpled cheeks and perfect mouth mentioned by the chronicler, and her face is exquisitely framed by luxuriant curls falling from her forehead in graceful profusion. As for Giacomo and Bernardo, as no portraits of them are in existence— "'We are obliged to gather an idea of their appearance from the manuscript "'which has enabled us to compile this sanguinary history. "'They are thus described by the eyewitnesses of the closing scene. Giacomo was short, well-made, and strong. "'With black hair and beard, he appeared to be about twenty-six years of age. "'Poor Bernardo was the image of his sister, "'so nearly resembling her that when he mounted the scaffold, "'his long hair and girlish face led people to suppose him to be Beatrice herself. "'He might be fourteen or fifteen years of age.' The peace of God be with them! End of part three of the Cenci. End of Celebrated Crimes, Volume one by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by George Burnham Ives. Recording by john Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.